Welcome to your upfront moment. We're building a confidence revolution. Hi friends, I'm Lauren Curry, the founder of Upfront. We're an organisation on a mission to change confidence for 1 million women and non-binary people by 2023. And we do this in three ways. We transform your relationship and habits around confidence, power and visibility through our six-week online course. Each cohort is called a bond. Bond is the collective noun for a group of women and over a thousand women have graduated from a bond from over 20 different countries. We build community, real, genuine, human community, where women learn how to stand up for themselves and each other. We hold each other to account. We celebrate each other and learn together. Our community is Global Bond. We create content that will inspire, challenge and motivate you to be upfront. We are here to change confidence, not women. Upfront Moment is designed to kick your week off with confidence, self-compassion and agency. Hi friend, welcome to this week's Upfront Moment. This is the second in our three-part series, Voices Exposing Misogyny in the System. This week, my special guest is Dr. Jessica Taylor. She is a working class feminist author, senior lecturer, speaker and researcher with a PhD from the University of Birmingham in forensic psychology. Jess has written two books, Why Women Are Blamed for Everything and her new book, Sexy But Psycho. In Why Women Are Blamed for Everything, Jess is exploring the many reasons why we blame women for male violence. She's exposing the powerful forces in society and individual psychology which compel us to blame women subjected to male violence. In Sexy But Psycho, she's looking at mental health. Women have long been pathologised, locked up and medicated for not conforming to whichever norms or stereotypes are expected of us in that time and space. This is a challenging and uncomfortable book which seeks to explore the way professionals and society at large pathologise and sexualise women and girls. These are big topics, they're heavy topics and they are important. They are vital. In this conversation with Jess, I ask her more about this work, about her mission, her background, her leadership, her confidence, her perspective on mental health and how that impacts her confidence It is a brilliant conversation and one that I know you're going to love. Let's go. So welcome to Upfront Moment, Jess. I'm really happy that you're here, followed your work for a long time and yeah, excited to have this time with you. Thank you so much for talking to me. So I'd love to ask you more about your story. Like, who are you and what do you care about? Um, That's a huge question. I never know how to answer this. You'd think I'd get better at answering this question, but I I actually think I'm getting worse um, because there's just so much that I do. And Mm. so, you know, that I I never know which thread to go down when uh, people ask me this question. So um, I guess um, I'm a chartered psychologist. I have... um, a PhD in forensic psychology and I have 
a real passion and interest in the psychology of the way that we will position women as the problem. So we'll blame women, we victim blame women, we um, frame them as hysterical, as mentally ill, as incompetent. Um, and I think that that threads through the, the whole of society. Like we, we do that in every way possible from the moment uh, a little girl is born. So mm-hmm. in that sense, my work ends up just spreading so many, you know, different topics and experiences and, you know, cultures. And uh, it's just huge. I am the CEO of Victim Focus, which is six years old next month. Um, Congratulations. And I know I, I, it's, um, it's getting a bit odd, actually. It feels like, I don't know, like it's, how did it get that old and how have we, you know, been doing it this long, but we work all over the world. Um, and we do all sorts of interesting things. Like sometimes we can be approached by government or police forces or authorities, uh, or even little organizations, you know, big private companies where they want to address misogyny or, uh, victim blaming or the way that women are being treated in a workforce or something like that. Um, and we also do a lot of the stuff around, you know, victims of sexual violence, domestic violence, child abuse, trafficking. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I do all of that stuff and then I wrote the books as well. So I didn't really, I didn't really plan on them being so successful and being so influential, but they are, and, and you know, I'm, I'm proud of that, but there's a lot that comes with that as well. Um, so, you know, um, I wrote why women are blamed for everything. And then, um, that sold thousands and thousands of copies. And I didn't realize that would happen because I only ordered 50. (laughs) And then I wrote sexy, but psycho, which, um, came out last year and the paperback version of it comes out actually next week, I think, which I'm excited about, but that that one went went straight to Sunday times bestseller. And I was just gobsmacked because I think the things that I write about are actually, quite niche so to get a Sunday Times bestseller it for a book that's arguing that women are deliberately being positioned as sex objects or mentally ill is I don't know how that happened exactly but um yeah so I do all sorts of stuff and tell me a little bit about where you were when you started your studies was this always a focus that you had or has it evolved over time like where did it come from my the way that I think evolves constantly so um it's generally on the same track but because I'm always reading and always learning and I'm always challenging myself I'm always evolving so when I first started looking at for example the psychology of victim blaming of women and girls that was because at that time I was working frontline um, in sexual violence and I was working um, with teenage girls who'd been sexually exploited and had been trafficked. And every single one of them was being positioned as the problem. It was sort of, you know, she's this, she's that, she did this, she's wearing that, you know, well, what did you expect if she does this? And I remember going from working with adult women who had been subjected to domestic abuse and sexual violence and the constant victim blaming from social workers, police, therapists, their families, their partners, their exes, everybody was just mind blowing. Like everybody had a reason why it was her fault. And then Mm. you have these women sat in front of you in therapy, you know, feeling like two inches tall, not knowing which way is up because everybody around them is telling them it's their fault. Um, and I remember going and working with children 
you know, a few years later and thinking, well, at least the victim women won't be as bad because they're children, but didn't make any fucking difference whatsoever. It did not make any difference mm. that that they, you know, we're talking 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 year old girls being positioned as, you know, the problem, stupid, naive, promiscuous, you know, like leading men on and like ridiculous things that you would think. Like, there's so many times I had to stop a social worker or stop a police officer and go, you, you realize we're talking about 11 year old, don't you? Like, what, what are you talking about? How, how can an 11 year old lead a man on? Like, it was, it, so that is where I, I just became, I was annoyed all the time, but I was fascinated by why and how so many professionals across different disciplines, you know, psychologists, social workers, police officers, youth workers, how could they all be coming to the same conclusion that women and girls were the problem? And, and so that's when I went and that's, you know, what I wanted to explore um, in the psychology PhD. But then when I was doing that, I was also coming across women and girls being constantly told they were mentally ill, that they had a personality disorder, that they were the mm-hmm. ones with some sort of problem, that they needed therapy, they needed medication. And for me, it was obvious that those things were connected. You know, if you're going to say to her, well, the reason you're in this situation is because X, Y, Z. And at the same time, you're going to go, and also, you know, you're not reacting to it very well and you're sad and you're angry all the time. And therefore you must have this disorder. For me, those things were just hand in hand. And then I guess that's what caused the evolution of my work to go from just what I think the public would see as straightforward victim blaming, you know, she was wearing a short skirt. Why were you walking down that street at that time? to this like gaslighting of women's mental health as well yeah and it's also systemic and complex isn't it and I I really liked the way that you had articulated your wish for women to stop looking at the individual in terms of ourselves as individuals and each other's as individuals and start to look at societal norms institutions traditions patterns and structures And you talk a lot about why it's really important that our feminism is structural and systemic. And I would love to just hear you talk a bit about like, what does that look like in practice, you know, for the amazing women who will be listening in and tuning in, working across lots of different sectors, you know, different ages, different statuses. Like, what is it? Why is it important that we all take that approach? So I, this is something that I feel really strongly about. And it's one of the reasons why you will never see me as a feminist with, you know, like a quarter of a million followers. You will never see me go at another woman. It's not happening. and It's not going to happen. I'm not going to make a comment about an individual woman. I'm not going to criticize an individual woman. And it's because I don't think that's the right way to do feminism. I think that especially radical feminism, second wave feminism was supposed to be about structural inequality and um, systemic oppression, right? And I think that when we slip into individualizing these problems into ourselves as women or into other women, um, you miss the point completely. Like we've all been socialized and groomed into things like femininity, toxic masculinity, into misogyny, into internalized misogyny. So when you make your arguments about this one woman who's pissed you off or this one woman who's done this, you're ignoring the fact that she lives in the same society you do and has been told all the same shit you've been told. Mm. So for as an example, you know, there are 
feminist writers and feminist thinkers, for example, that, um, I don't know, like criticised Madonna and Madonna's appearance, like recently, mm-hmm. for example. Mm-hmm. But what do, what do you get out of that? So like, what are you gaining from your analysis of, for example, female oppression by just making it about Madonna having cosmetic surgery? Like, rather than sitting there saying, oh, look at the state of her face, look what she's done to her body. It's probably because she feels like she's getting old. It's probably because she's trying to look young. Why don't you take the woman out of your conversation and actually make it about, look at the pressure that's on female um, celebrities all around the world because of this systemic obsession Mm. with female youth, because all of us are under this pressure to one extent or another. And if you're in the public eye, you're under that pressure even more so. So why not make your, you know, writing, your thinking, your conversations about the pressure and about, you know, I don't know, like if you wanted to talk about the criticisms of cosmetic surgery as an industry, fine, but don't, you know, sit mocking a woman's appearance and then claim it's feminism. So like, I I just think that there's so many issues where, you know, you could as a feminist, be taking a step back and thinking, why am I criticizing this one woman in this situation mm-hmm. when I when I should be looking at the entire structures and systems that sit around her? Yeah, and it's being able to hold those two things in mind at once is also not something that is encouraged and taught when we are growing up and learning how to think critically. I'm curious to know about more about your kind of day to day given that you are immersed in this you know very dark world at times I'm sure of male violence and sexism and you mentioned things around trafficking and child abuse like what is the hardest part of being immersed in that world for you and what helps you to keep going I think if I was honest the hardest part about that is the desensitization and the hopelessness because Mm. um I also think there is a pressure on professionals like me as a psychologist that you're supposed to be like above in some way, like that you're supposed to be able to handle all this because you're the professional and they're the vulnerable people and they're the ones that are struggling and you're the one that's got it all together. I think that's just lies. I mean, that's absolute rubbish. You know, professionals are going home to difficult relationships, problems with their families you know, their kids are struggling, health issues, domestic abuse, like professionals are not in any way better than or more than anybody else. But we, we've created an illusion of professionalism that means that, you know, for example, um, if I like this podcast, if I'm sat here in a T-shirt swearing, then I'm not a good enough psychologist. Why? Like, because we've created an, like this fake veneer that you're supposed to live up to. So like, I struggle with that. Like that's one of the Mm. things that, because there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of faking it going on in this industry. Um, Like sort of professionals that are all like pretending that they're something that they're not um, Mm -hmm. because they're supposed to, because of the system sort of saying to them, well, you know, in order to be taken seriously, you need to talk like this and dress like this and act like this and say these things and whatever. So I do struggle with that element of it. And then in terms of like the hopelessness and desensitization, there's like, um, I guess what I mean by that is that you get to the point where nothing shocks you anymore and you start wondering, would life be easier if you knew none of this? Or is it easier because you know it all? Like, you know, these things happen and you know, you know, for example, that 
trafficking is extremely common, that sexual abuse is extremely common, that domestic abuse is extremely common, you know, does that, would you rather have your eyes open and, and know that you have to live with that knowledge for the rest of your life and you can like spot things that you, you hear things in public, you know, it's weird the way that you'll tune into something. You might be sat having dinner with your family mm. and across the way you can hear, you know, a man threatening his missus across the table under his breath. And you think, Oh God, like, and then you're watching it for the next 20 minutes, checking, thinking, do I step in? Does she need help? What do we do? You know, like you, you can't, you don't, it's almost like once you're awake to it, there's nothing you can do about it. Um, and then you, I think for me, the impact that it's had on me is that I've definitely got to the point where I'm just all the time, like, I just, so I, like, I, you'll hear, like, people hear me say it all the time. I say, God, like, I can't wait for, like, an asteroid to just strike us and just, like, wipe us out. Like, because you get to the point where you've seen such a horrible um streak of human nature in so many people um and also the almost like the collusion and or the ignorance of people where they they see wrongdoing they see oppression they see violence and abuse and they just switch off and think oh not my problem um but then they're the first ones to complain when something happens to them or their family they say nobody did anything like right you're not doing anything for anyone else like that it, it, I think definitely as the years have gone on, and I do think it's going to get worse for me because I can feel it getting worse as I age, is that I just get more and more desperate about human nature and just think we're not going to survive as a species if we keep behaving like this towards yeah. each other. And I think that I think that is, and from a psychological trauma perspective, obviously, because I research trauma and I understand it, I know what that is. I know that the trauma of everything that I'm being exposed to changes my worldview, which is normal. And so your worldview shifts and you relate to people in the world in a different way. And, you know, that's what's happening to me. And that's what happens to lots of professionals. They just don't talk about it. Mm. I mean, that sounds really hard. Like why, what keeps you going? Why do you keep going? I don't know. Sometimes I don't know the answer to that. And then other times I do have an answer um depending on where I am and what's going on but I think ultimately it's feeling responsible um Mm -hmm. that if I've already come this far and built this platform and there's a way for me to share knowledge for free with millions of people um then I should do it I feel like there's a responsibility there that if you for whatever reason if your path in life has led you to a place where you have some kind of influence or platform, then you should be using that for good to educate people, to inform them, to empower them as as much as you can until that part of your path or life ends or whatever. So um, I think more than anything, even when I'm really struggling, the thing that keeps me going is is that I feel responsible, which um, even still is complicated. Um, I, I know that, you know, so like, for example, like hundreds of women a week write to me, probably some weeks it could be a thousand. Most weeks it might be like 200 to 500 women will write to me mm-hmm. and it'll be everywhere from, you know, something like saying I've read your book and it changed my life. And I just wanted to tell you that I didn't understand myself until I'd read your stuff all the way through to, you know, women in crisis saying you're the only person that I can think of that will understand this thing that, I'm, mm-hmm. that I've lived through you know, and like, and everything in between. Um, and I know the impact 
of what I'm doing. And I think that keeps me going as well. You know, that mm-hmm. at the absolute base minimum, there are women that need this. They need to hear it. They need to see it. And so I'm going to keep going. Yeah. What does your support system look like? Um, it varies. I mean, obviously I've got Jamie, um, and my wife and, um, she is, she is incredible. Um, she's my best friend and I just, I I wouldn't be able to do any of it if I didn't have her advice and support and love and consistency and things, you know, and that takes a toll on her as well. So I have to be careful and I have to make sure that she doesn't get burned out as well. Um, because that, that worries me. Um, I don't really have any family, so I don't have any support network there. Um, I have some really, really, really good close friends, like like best friends for years that would do anything to like hold me up and look after me, you know, in the same way that I would for them. Um, and I know that, and they have like in several points in my life where I've I've needed. I don't know, to go and stay or to do something or I've needed them in an emergency. They have been there, no questions. And I, I know that. So like, that helps you to sort of, I guess, feel safe that you've got that. Um, but in reality, if I was, gonna, you know, if I was honest, there's plenty of times during this work that I have no support network. And that's for mm. many different reasons. Like, you know, some professionals don't agree with what I'm saying. Um, some people don't want to be associated with what I'm saying because they think it's too controversial or that it would get them in trouble at work, for example. Like I have a lot of professionals that will contact me on the quiet and say, I agree with everything you say, but if I was to say that at work, I'd probably get hold in. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, there's, there's like a fear, especially of mental health. I get lots and lots of psychologists, mental health nurses, uh, mental health professionals contacting me to say, I wish I could support you more publicly, but I can't, um, you know, so I sort of, I have to learn and I've had to learn uh, is I think is, is a, has ended up a strength, but I would rather not have it. I've had to learn how to go forward, even when I have no support network. Mm, which is hard. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's really, really hard, but it's been a common theme in my life anyway, since when I was really young. So it isn't that abnormal for me to be pushing through something or doing something very difficult with virtually no support or very little support left um and it it it, I've had to just learn that it it ebbs and flows like it changes and um Mm. you can't I think that's where some of the stuff around you know like your work around like confidence and leadership and women being empowered and things like that but I've had to learn that support is great and everything but sometimes you're not going to have it and that's not a reason for you to stop like you can't if you always wait for people to support you or to be there or to back you up or to encourage you, you won't do the things that you want or need to do. So you have to learn how to be your own support network and, or, and you know, like fa- fair enough, you've got a great support network. Great. But some, some women don't. So, yeah. you know, you have to find ways of being what you need for yourself. Yeah. I think it's really important because the image that we're fed of this, you know, everybody's got the WhatsApp group with the five best friends that they've known since they were eight that'll fly all over the world and catch them whenever they need them. And I always think, I don't have that. I've never had that. Yeah, I don't. Um, I think, to be honest, I don't think most people do. And even even though you and I, for example, might have really close friends, like my best friends, one of them's a neuroscientist and the other one's like a lead in child protection. We are busy women. Like, 
you know, I can't. So we, we sort of operate on this. Like, I know that if I was to text them now and say, I need, I need someone to come and stay. I'm having a really shit time. They would be like, yeah, see you later. I'll buy, you know, come at this time at six o'clock. I'll be back, whatever. Um, you know, I, I know that in an emergency and they're the same with us, like they'll text and be like, I've had a terrible time. Can I come over for the weekend and just spend some time? Yeah. Sound. But we don't even live anywhere near each other. We live hundreds of miles from each other. Um, but it's more, I think sometimes about like knowing that somebody loves you. Do you know what I mean? And like, they will be there, but you're right. I mean, I also think that in industry and in business, there is an assumption that, um, you know, like how you've just described it, but from like a business perspective that you've got this like solid support yeah. network around you that's, yeah. you know, that's always cheering you on and they're there for you. And actually my experience has been that the more successful you get as a woman, the, the lonelier you'll probably get because of territorialism and internalized misogyny. You, you probably won't end up with a female support network. Yeah, I must say like it's been, it's been a big theme for me throughout my kind of entrepreneurial journey and it's only been this last kind of one to two years where I've felt like I've had a support network and it still feels too small um and I think it's hard when you are a woman at the front of something and and you're showing up in a way that feels progressive and very forward to find other women who are steps or years ahead of you who can look back and help you you know don't make the same mistakes I made here's how I did it I think that's um something that I find particularly difficult yeah um, I, I really I get that actually um my experience of that so far has been that there are some women I've had so I had this one female mentor who was much older than me she was actually just about to retire and um, she, I worked with her very closely for about three years. She's still a friend now, years later, but she taught me an incredible amount about finance and business and about business leadership. Yeah, she, like, she was amazing. And, she, and do you know what it was with her was that she genuinely wanted to pass that knowledge on. There was no ego there. There was no like, I can't really explain it. Like it was genuine and she was constant. She would pull me up all the time though. If I was doing something wrong, you know, she would just be like, don't do that. Or like, please don't do that again. Or that's not the way you do that. And she, but she was awesome. And I will always forever be thankful of the influence that she had. But I've also come across, especially I would say in feminism, that there's a, a much more like internalized misogyny, ironically, around older women, where it's almost like mm. you're supposed to respect them, you're not supposed to question them, you're supposed to pay homage to them constantly, and then they're allowed to say that you don't have any experience, you're too young, you don't know what you're talking about. So there's like a like it's this, and I never came across that in other sectors. It's mm. only in feminism where it's like. I've been here since the 60s. I know everything there is to know. You don't know anything. What are you, 30, 20? You know, like, what have you got to give? Whereas I, you know, like I said, I've had other mentors where I was actually much younger. I was like 22, 23, where there was no ego there. So it was like, let me teach you all that I know. I've, you know, she's, she'd been an um, incredibly successful um in business all the way through her life. And then she was imparting that to younger women. And there was no, I don't know what the word is. 
there was no like discomfort there or like competitive edge to it or anything. It was just passing it on and like teaching. Yeah. And that's what we need for sure. Um, to touch back on the kind of mental health piece that you mentioned. So you talk a lot about psychiatric disorders around feelings of, or behaviors of confidence and leadership and power and progress. And I would love to just hear you talk a bit more about what you what you mean there and maybe if there's any stories you can share from your work to help the folks listening understand kind of what that is and why it's important that we think about that. So it was actually, I think I know what you're referring to and that's because I'd written some things uh, recently about the way that I'd been thinking more and more because I'm working on a project at the moment um, around psychiatric diagnosis because I think it's flawed and I think it's extremely problematic. I think that it's used to frame women as incompetent and as um, unstable. And what I noticed when I was I was reading all these books and all these case studies and I was you know reading the DSM and things like that that there are particular questions that are used to diagnose especially women as delusional if they think they're good at something and that's not the first time I've come across that either so sometimes I've, I've worked with teenage girls or were uh, with young women who were raped or abused where they would say things like um like they've been sectioned and they'd be sat there saying I shouldn't be here I don't want to be here. You know, I want to go to university. I want to, I want to be a doctor. I'm doing a, I want to do a biomedical degree. I'm doing this, I'm doing that. And the doctor's like, okay, well, that's, you know, that's your delusions because, you know, like you're not capable of that. You're in here. Do you know what I mean? And I was like, where is the line here? Because that, I mean, that's an extreme example. And I'm thinking of someone in particular that I know that happened to where, she she sat there and was like, I'm smart enough to be a doctor. And they were like, do you know, it was almost like, okay, like whatever. Um, but she was, and then, and she is, and she's now at uni doing that exact thing. But why, what was going on there that they needed to frame her intelligence as delusion? And also what, why is it, for example, that you are more likely to be seen as narcissistic or having a personality disorder if you're confident and if you're assertive as a woman? Why are you more likely to be positioned as mentally ill if you know your mind, if you are not particularly interested in what other people think about you, if you have a strong opinion of yourself? And so like, I started thinking about this more and more about the fact that you are to you are, you know, you're told all the time by the media love yourself, treat yourself, love yourself more. And then when you do love yourself, and if you dared even say, I love who I am, I love what I've done, I love my life, I love me as a person, people would be like, it's a bit narcissistic, isn't it? Like, she's obviously got some sort of personality disorder, sounds a bit borderline, sounds a bit obsessed with herself, sounds a bit psychotic. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. what is happening here? You know, why have so many psychiatric diagnoses got this link through to confidence and through to assertiveness and intelligence? And why is it that one, I don't know, for example, one woman could be confident and assertive and intelligent mm. and everybody celebrate her, but another woman could also be confident, assertive, intelligent, 
and she's challenging, let's say, the doctors or the social workers about their decision making, and they start suggesting that she has, you know, personality disorder. Um, mm. And so when you look at the diagnostic criteria, for particular diagnoses in the DSM, it will talk about, you know, it's like some of the questions for that diagnosis will say things like, um, oh, I'm trying to think of one of the questions that I read the other day. It said, um, have you ever been told that you think too much of yourself? And I was like, what woman has not been told that? And then one of the second questions for the diagnosis process was, has anybody ever told you that you have a chip on your shoulder? And I was thinking to myself, right, okay, where are we going with this? And then the third question, I'd have to go and get the book, but um, the third question said something like, um, do you believe that you have some sort of purpose or special reason for like being on the earth? And like, have you got it? Yeah. And it was like, if says yes, you know, that's criteria for this diagnosis. Mm. So you can start to see the questions themselves are leading you down this path that if you as a woman are sat in front of that psychiatrist going, well, yeah, I do. I think I'm here to do something important. Um, Yes, I do love myself. Yes, I am very confident. Yes, I trust myself. Yes, I have lots of talents and abilities that I can share with the world. Yes, people do tell me I've got a chip on my shoulder. Yes, people have told me that I'm full of myself and I have a high opinion of myself. That, believe it or not, is enough to get diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder. Just those questions that I just told you because it hits the criteria for five or more. So like, can you see why I'm so critical? So Jess, what's your relationship with confidence like after after that bomb you've just dropped on all of us about the link to how these things, some of these disorders are diagnosed? Tell me a bit about your confidence and how you stretch your confidence muscles. Everybody describes me as a really confident um, person and I think I am. I think I am. Um, uh, there's ov- Obviously, I question my abilities a lot. Um, I think that's quite common. Um, I definitely do have moments where I just think, oh my God, what am I doing? Um, But for some reason, they don't really last. Um, I've got more, I think around confidence, I've got more of a philosophy of if you don't try, you'll never know, will you? And so Mm -hmm. even from being young, Um, I don't know if you've ever heard this phrase. I think a lot of people do use it, but it was very commonly used when I was growing up. And um, it's it's just in for a penny, in for a pound. And um, that's very much how I approach absolutely everything. Like if I'm going to do something, then I'm then like, like may as well have a go at it. Like, and I've always had this belief as well that I think, that I should throw myself into situations where I'm unsure to see how I deal with them. And then I'll learn afterwards. Um, and I've done that for a very long time and it works very well, but it does mean that I'm very often frightened, um, of, you know, an outcome or whether I'm good enough or whatever, but Mm -hmm. it means that it keeps proving to me that I'm actually more capable than I think I am. And so I put myself in another situation then I do another one, Mm -hmm. do another one. And so, um, I'm not scared of failure, which I think is linked to mm-hmm. why I think people perceive me as confident and why I probably feel like I am fairly confident. 
I'm not scared of failure and I'm not scared of getting something wrong. I'm not scared of like my idea not working because sometimes they don't and sometimes they do. Like, it doesn't really bother me. I don't, I'm not really frightened of that. I don't know. I don't have any like shame or guilt or anything around like if I do something wrong or, um, or if I get something wrong or if I have an idea that doesn't really work out or if I have like um, a project and it's not successful or something, like it doesn't make me feel bad. It just makes me think, hmm, I didn't do that right. Like, I don't know, I don't have anything, like, attached to it that impacts my confidence. Um, I'm quite forgiving of myself, I think, and other people. So um, I also think as well, like, I, I do genuinely believe that the vast majority of people are capable of pretty much anything. Mm. I, I just think we're told that only certain ones of us are capable of pretty much anything. So. I work off the basis very often that, you know, that anybody could do that or like I could do that. So like that person could has, you know, for example, I could see somebody and think, wow, they've, they've worked incredibly hard. They've put all that time and effort in and then look how amazingly they've done on that particular thing. And then rather than like being jealous or envious or whatever, I'll think, well, that means then that if I have a project and I work really, really hard and I put all the time and effort in, then I, then I can achieve something because mm-hmm. it's it's the same process where we're not born geniuses we're not like born business leaders do you know what I mean everybody had to put the work Absolutely. in so I don't know like it's yeah confidence is I don't really know I don't really know where it comes from because I definitely wasn't encouraged to be confident and I was I was um, when I expressed that level of confidence especially at school I was absolutely mercilessly bullied and pushed back down but I don't really know. I just, I had almost like an internal buoyancy that was like, eh, I'll just carry on. <laughs> I don't really know. Yeah. And that's, you know, a big part of what we are working hard to cultivate in each other in our community up front and taking a really strong stance as you do on that this is not about individuals, this is about st- structural inequality and systemic oppression that means we are showing up in a world where we've been taught to stay quiet and to stay small and to fear failure and a lot of these things we've talked about. So we're on a mission to support 1 million women. And I would you know, love to hear from your point of view, like how would the world feel and be different when we achieve that goal from your vantage point? I think... If if we were, if you were to achieve that and, and then if we were to sort of like grow it and grow it, I think what I would, I, what it would look like, I would hope, is that we would hear a lot more of women's ideas because mm-hmm. um, I love listening to women's ideas about the world. Me like too, it's the best. Like, it is, isn't it? And like, and their perspectives on things and also their ideas for change and their ideas for inventions and their ideas for, you know, projects and things like that so many women come to me with their ideas and they do it in this way that's like seeking approval or permission. And the Mm. first thing I always say to them is stop. You don't need permission or approval from somebody else. You already have an awesome idea. Go and chase it. Stop waiting for somebody that you perceive to have more power than you to tell you that's a good idea. Well done. Like Mm. fuck that. Do it anyway. Like don't wait for somebody else. So I would love, like, the change would mean that, you know, if you encouraged that, we would be able to listen to women's solutions 
you know, about problems in the world and that they would be taken seriously and that, you know, other women wouldn't attempt to drag them down, you know, out of their own sort of like insecurities and internalized Mm. misogyny, um, which is very common too, because we live in a patriarchy um, and we're all taught to do that. So like, I would hope that that would lessen as well, you know? What a world, we'll get there. And thank you for, thank you for the part you play in helping to make that world become a reality and for all the work you do to support women all over the world it's been really brilliant to learn more and to to meet you properly so thank you so much Jess thank you I really appreciate it Your Upfront Challenge this week is one directly from Dr Jessica Taylor herself and it is this. Before you diagnose yourself with the disorder that you have found on the internet, first check that you are not distressed by your circumstances, being abused or being bullied, being gaslit, being discriminated against, living in fear, living in pressure, living in poverty trying to cope with trauma and stress. I would love to hear what you think of this conversation, what you are left with, what it's brought up for you, what you're going to take away from it. Send me a message, lauren at weareupfront.com. Tag me online at underscore lauren curry underscore. Would love to hear from you. Next week is the last part of our three-part mini-series, Voices Exposing Misogyny in the System. I'd also love to know how you found the series. Obviously, it's different. It's a different way of doing the podcast. It's something new that we've tried. So I'd really love to hear from you if you've enjoyed it, if you liked it. What did you like about it? Next week, our guest is Dania Alobaid who was arrested at Sarah Everard's vigil and is now suing the Met Police. Her story is extraordinary and I can't wait to share it with you. See you next week. Thank you so much for listening, friend. Let me know how you get on with your upfront challenge. You can always write to me, lauren at weareupfront.com. Let me know what this moment made you think about. And don't forget to sign up to our amazing Upfront newsletter. Every Tuesday, I send links, inspiration and insight around confidence, power and visibility to over 5,000 inboxes. Guaranteed gumption and action. Bye friends, I'll see you on Monday for your next Upfront moment.